You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. to this week's episode of Best Camp of My Life, a podcast about MMA. Kind of, but not really, but kind of. I'm your host, Fernanda Prates, unless you believe the rumors, in which case I may or may not actually be Katarina Monarnovic, a retired songstress who was forced to leave Slovakia under a new identity after the fame stemming from her record-breaking album proved to be too powerful and overwhelming to bear. And yes, I may or may not once have been called the greatest living vocalist and probably better than the dead ones too by the Slovak Expectator. And yes, I may have had several torrid love affairs with prominent celebrities, political figures, and heirs to unfathomable fortunes. But even if all of that did happen, and as advised by my legal counsel, I'm not saying it did, it's all in the past now. For the intents and purposes of this humble podcast, I am merely your host, Fernanda Prates, Brazilian-born journalist of average intelligence and medium talent whose sole claim to fame was that one time when a fighter stopped her interview to claim the earth is indeed not round. Yes, this life might not be as fun as, say, getting arrested off the coast of Ibiza after accidentally starting a diplomatic incident with a flare gun. And yes, maybe I do kind of miss being part of a super secret space program, but hey, this is cool too. I mean, I get to hang out with you. And I sure do hope you like hanging out with me because that's all we're going to be doing today. That's right. For the first time in quite a while, it's just me running the ship, which means that Rather than using my questions to qualified guests as an excuse to go on endless tangents that most of you probably just skipped through, today I will just go on endless tangents, unaccompanied, uninterrupted, and dangerously untethered to a human context and objective reality. Yay! If it's any consolation, though, there is some structure to my chaos. Rather than just go off on shit that angers me, and trust me, there is a lot of shit that angers me, I have picked three current themes that have been on my mind lately. Weight cutting, Kobe Covington's latest, and MMA in times of COVID. Maybe you agree with me. Maybe you don't. Maybe you like it. Maybe you won't. Maybe I'll make sense. Maybe I won't. What matters most is that you know I don't take kindly to criticism and will only accept nice comments and positive reinforcement. Thank you in advance. First theme, the weight cutting issue. I'm going to level with you here. I am a coward when it comes to discussing the 
quote-unquote weight-cutting issue. Usually, I hide behind my lack of medical and physiological knowledge. I point to the fact that I've never been an athlete myself. I use big umbrella terms like systemic issue and gracefully excuse myself from the conversation by claiming I have diarrhea or something. Last year, when it fell upon me to write a weight-cutting-related story for The Athletic after an anonymous survey we had conducted with 170 fighters, I was panicked. I was afraid of giving it the wrong approach, of misinterpreting the data, and basically of embarrassing myself in public by letting it show that I didn't really have a firm position on the matter. Not when I can embarrass myself in all these other, much more inventive ways anyway. It was a tricky one to navigate, but the whole process got easier once I accepted I wasn't going to be able to simplify an issue that the fighters themselves couldn't provide easy explanations to. Looking back on it, nothing speaks more to the several layers of this than the numbers. Although the vast majority, as in 66.4% of the fighters interviewed, did agree that weight cutting was a serious problem in MMA, 67.1% of them didn't think it should be banned. Something that came up there, as it often comes up in this discussion, was the focus not on the practice itself, but on the way it's commonly done. Meaning, the idea that you just have to cut weight the right way, with the right professionals, assessing what is right for your body, etc. And one thing that struck me then, as it still strikes me now, is how simple that sounds compared to how it actually goes in real life. And for this, I will quote another story that was on The Athletic, this one from my colleague, Mike former colleague Shaheen Al-Shadi, about the UFC's Performance Institute's efforts to deal with the damage of bad weight cutting. In it, we had athletes like Michael Chiesa, who spent years of his long stint in the world's top MMA organization, shrinking down to lightweight, only to find out that, hey, he's actually a welterweight. We had athletes like Joanna Yang Jajak, who publicly broke off with the nutrition team because of what she had then called unforgivable mistakes during a weight cut. You had Macy Barber, who at 21 had stopped getting her periods because she had previously been put on an insane calorie deficit diet to compete at 115 pounds. And those were just examples in this specific story of athletes in a premier organization. I'm sure we have all heard of other fighters who talked about finally finding the right approach to their nutrition or finally figuring out their ideal cutting practices or finally arriving to their right division years into their high-level careers after quite a long time of making mistakes. Just like we've seen fighters who have had several successful cuts suddenly fail to make weight or get seriously ill in a process that had been just fine many times before. And still we seem to collectively believe that there's some foolproof science behind weight cutting and that it really is about cracking that code, as if A, it's that simple, and B, it's something that's easily accessible to fighters. In an MMA space that is riddled with pseudoscience and snake oil salesmen, while simultaneously, and particularly outside of the major organizations, of course, lacking in resources and adequate support systems. Now, fast forward to just this past Thursday, when a student who is writing his dissertation on weight cutting asked for me uh, to give him an interview, not as a specialist. Again, I am not a specialist on anything, and you should just 
avoid listening to me on uh, not only this, but basically all of the other things that happen. But as someone who has been around the sport for a long time, uh, I agreed to do it, of course. I read up on stuff. I went back to the survey and I tried to gather my thoughts in a somewhat cohesive way. I failed, by the way, and I have since been wrecked with guilt for the transcription I will put this poor man through. But in any case, we discussed all these things I mentioned before and horror stories like Uriah Hall's quote-unquote slight heart attack and quote-unquote mini seizure uh, during a botched cut. And even worse cases like those of fighters outside mainstream promotions who have died or suffered irreparable damage in their processes. I... I wondered aloud about how a practice that was once supposed to give fighters an advantage has really become about simply trying to avoid a disadvantage and how if that makes any sense at all. I talked about how for a long time, I did fear that the first ever UFC death would be actually stemming from a botched cut. When we discussed the idea of banning the practice altogether, however, I was dismissive. I said it just didn't really seem realistic. I talked about things like the California Athletic State Commission's 2017 10-step plan to curb the effects of extreme weight cutting, which I do think is a solid concept if it was actually widely utilized and enforced by all the commissions and promotions. And I talked about how basically putting obstacles to steep cuts would be a great start. And um, there you had it, a reasonable, non-radical, socially acceptable take that wouldn't ruffle any feathers or get anyone in trouble. But then cut to the day after the interview uh, I gave, which was a Friday morning, and we see Julija Storialenko. Sorry, sorry if I butcher that story, Alenko. But yes, uh, we saw a female fighter who was supposed to be fighting Julia Avila on the next day's UFC event in Las Vegas, literally fainting on the scale uh, while making weight twice. And there we went again. The headlines warning viewers of yet another hard-to-watch moment. The shocked tweets wishing that Storielenko was, you know, doing well. The familiar dance we had seen with Aspen Ladd and Cynthia Calvillo and Felipe Aranches and so many others that I can't even recall at the top of my head because we're so quick to forget these things in MMA. I, like a lot of my colleagues, tweeted about this incredibly disturbing sight, alluding to the interview I had given the day before, only to be met with the following response from, you guessed it, random Twitter dude whose opinion I did not want or ask for. It, as in weight cutting he meant, uh, is never going away. There will always be weight cutting in combat sports. Many of these fighters have been cutting weight since childhood, the wrestler especially. If they can't handle the cut, choose a different weight class. Nobody forces them to fight at a certain weight. Now, in hindsight, I know I shouldn't have been that mad at this guy's response. I mean, it is very reflective of the general sentiment around weight cutting. It's nothing I haven't heard several times before, even from people whose opinions I actually care about. I mean, I had myself just pretty much agreed with this guy the day before when I said I couldn't really imagine combat sports without weight cutting. Basically, there was nothing particularly controversial about this stance. And yet, I was fucking livid. 
I was livid because, yes, I generally take issue with arguments that take the harm caused by entire cultures and systems and myopically boil them down to a simple matter of personal responsibility, but also because I saw in comment form exactly the kind of lazy, unimaginative, and frankly defeatist thinking that I, too, find myself engaging in when it comes to complicated problems that I don't have immediate answers to. The kind of thinking that just shrugs its shoulders and says, well, things are how they are, simply because we can't imagine them being any different, or because we don't want to sound too radical, or because we are simply just not worried, invested, or personally affected enough to actually put the time, energy, and actual discomfort that it takes to change them. I'm not sitting here saying that on the time that has elapsed from Friday till now, I have magically come up with a solution to a problem that even fighters themselves don't really seem to have a solution for. And I'm not even saying that we should or even can ban weight cutting altogether. What I'm saying is that it's pretty obvious that we have a big problem and that big problems require big solutions and big thinking and big talks and big change. They require uncomfortable conversations and unpopular opinions and the sheer ability to imagine things happening in a different way. So yes, it is pretty fucking difficult to imagine MMA without weight cutting. At this point though, can we really afford not to? On to our next theme, the most recent Colby Covington situation. That's that's what I'm, I'm calling it. I admit I went back and forth on even debating this one. Um, as you may recall, I briefly touched on this in our last episode, but I didn't even go too far into it because frankly, I just assume that people who listen to this podcast don't need to be told that a man going on a show and talking about a female colleague the way that Colby Covington did is just truly fucking disgusting. I'm not even going to repeat what he said because you can easily find it on the internet and I don't want to give his words any more projection than they deserve. But I will say this. The internet as a whole really surprised me on this one. Was there the occasional asinine comment about how Vienna deserved it because she gasped there take pictures with him? Yes, of course. There will always be those determined to blame women for whatever misfortune comes their way. But I saw enough condemnations of his behavior to kind of not hate humankind for about eight minutes, which is frankly some kind of record. So if you are one of those people who reacted appropriately to the situation, which I'm just going to go ahead and assume you are because otherwise, why the fuck are you doing listening to me? Go ahead and treat yourself to some Reese's Cups and a rewatch of Bring It On. You've earned it. See, I, I could end this here and just congratulate us all on a job well done, but I won't because A, I'm paid to say things and B, leaving shit alone is not really what I do, is it? Especially shit that I know will be either forgotten get lost in the discourse, or treat it like a minor side note whenever Covington adds new layers to the sewage cake that is his public persona. So let's just make it very clear for the people in the back. There is not a single particle of what Covington did that is acceptable, funny, or that can be dismissed as just part of his gimmick. It doesn't matter if Covington is actually a great guy, if he rescues kittens in his spare time, if he bakes great cupcakes and has lovely anecdotes. I've said it before and I'll say it again. That is beside the point. 
He chose to embarrass a female colleague, one whom he, in the same breath, claimed to have nothing but respect for in a public forum. And that is not acceptable behavior in any line of work, in any line of anything, let alone in one that involves visibility. And if the USC won't do anything about it, which we kind of know they won't, the least we can do is take this seriously. And remember, next time Covington appears to say a media appointment with, say, two women under his arms, serving as a pair of luxury accessories, and people want to laugh it off like some hilarious marketing stunt. Again, I don't know Covington. I have no idea what he's like in real life. But what we saw unfolding in public was someone who was not taking the humanity of his peer, who's a real-life person, may I remind you, not a stage prop, into account when he decided to use her as an element to enhance his incomprehensible narrative. And to those whose instinct was to say that she had it coming for even associating with him, I invite you to examine why. Why, in light of this obviously gross thing that a man said about a woman, your impulse was to point out the ways in which the woman brought it upon herself? And most importantly, why, given the very acceptable option to just stay silent, you decided to use your words on the matter to shame her for interacting with him? Not even publicly praising him, mind you, not exalting his actions that I know of, but simply just daring to be seen in a photo alongside him. As for Vienna herself, she seemed to have made it clear where she stood in a tweet that she never mentioned really Covington in, but that the internet figured had to have something to do with him. I can't tell for sure, of course, but here is what may or may not have been a boss-ass response to a gross-ass comment. And I quote, I never allowed room for any kind of comment or judgment of my personal life, but it's not up to me to judge the person's attitude. I feel sorry for those who act in such a low way to promote themselves. It's disgusting. Close quote. Interestingly, or sadly enough, we had a similar thing happen recently when Casey Kenney made some tasteless remarks about Megan Anderson during a podcast. The situation wasn't exactly the same, starting with the fact that Kenny at least apologized. And again, I don't want to give these comments more projection than needed, but again, it was a case of a male fighter using a public forum to make sexually charged remarks about a female colleague. And to Absolutely no one's surprised. Among the several comments rightfully condemning Kenny's behavior, there were those dismissing his words as locker room talk. There were those who didn't really understand what the fuss was all about. And there were those, as there are always those, doing argumentative gymnastics to somehow shift the responsibility to Anderson. After all, she does post pictures of her own body in her own social media. She can't possibly expect to be respected, right? I mean, what does she think? That she should just be allowed to exert control over her own image? No, 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 no. As we all know, the female figure is supposed to be ogled and objectified only against our will. We're not supposed to get any enjoyment or gratification out of it. That's just not how it works. I wrote more specifically about this Anderson situation and this kind of victim-blaming remark uh, on a recent column that is up on Fanbyte, if you care to check it out. But to wrap this theme up, I'm going to do it in the same kind of a note that I started with, which is a semi-positive one. 
While it is disheartening that in 2021, we still have to explain why this is a problem. And of course, these two women shouldn't have to be subjected to this kind of exposure. I do believe that the general conversation around both cases was surprisingly adequate, certainly compared to what it would have been as recently as a decade ago or even, who knows, five years ago. We do seem collectively more conscious of the harm caused by certain comments that have been historically dismissed as harmless guy talk or not that big of a deal. We do seem more willing to educate those who don't understand that. And yes, there are jackasses making dumbass remarks, but I guess progress will always come with those desperately trying to fight it. For today, though, I choose hope. Don't get too used to it, though. It's a limited time offer. Last and third theme of the day is COVID and how we as MMA people are dealing with it, I guess. Now, I know I've talked about COVID a lot with my guests this year. I know we're kind of over it. I know it is exhausting to have 80% of our conversations and human interactions based around it. I know that the very reason why we turn to sports and movies and awful murder content on Discovery Plus is to distract ourselves from the painful realities of everyday living during the apocalypse. But guess what? If we're going to insist on having sports in the middle of a global pandemic, we're going to have to keep talking about sports in the context of a global pandemic. As we briefly touched on last week, it was recently announced that the USC was about to do its first event in front of a full audience in Jacksonville next month. Later that same week, it was revealed that Paulo Costa, who had just pulled out of a fight with Robert Whitaker, was still dealing with the effects of a poorly healed case of COVID. As we know, he wasn't the first UFC athlete going through something similar. Not that long ago, former bantamweight champion Cody Garbrandt talked about battling body aches, fatigue, and vertigo months after his diagnosis, as well as a blood clot that led to a torn vein in his arm. Most notably, up-and-comer Hamza Chimaev kind of announced his retirement recently at 26 after kicking off his USC career with three wins and a whole lot of hype due to the aftermath of COVID on his body. And, and that's what we know from the athletes themselves and the ones who spoke publicly about it. It excludes the impact on their corner people, on their training partners, on their families, etc., etc. What it's interesting to know here is that in regards to Chimaev, UFC president Dana White said that he had been told not to return to training while undergoing treatment and insisted on doing so, which is why he was feeling so frustrated. In Costa's case, his brother and coach told MMA Fighting that while his bout with COVID was moderate, he insisted on continuing to train before fully recovering. And while it's easy to say, oh, well, obviously you should wait until you're fully recovered to get back into training, that would be kind of ignoring that there is a whole culture going around these athletes, both in the sense that fighters are kind of wired to push through things and in the sense that COVID isn't always dealt with in the MMA community or frankly beyond as the serious threat that it can be. I'm going to quote a tweet from Bloody Elbow Zane Simon because I feel like he summed it up pretty well. And he said, UFC has really reflected a broader MMA culture of downplaying COVID. Fighters getting instant rebookings after testing positive, etc. Now we're seeing talent sidelined for months after getting sick and just trying to train through it. Um, he continued, 
in a thread. I'm not trying to lay his illness, and he was referring to Costa. It was a news piece about Costa at the UFC's feet for what it's worth. Just noting that they let broader dismissive attitude toward the disease lead them rather than leading with caution. And then another tweet. Whole clusterfuck is really just, by the way, that's my one of my favorite American words. You guys really rock for that one. Whole clusterfuck is really just spelled out perfectly with a situation like Dana White complaining that Chimaev won't listen and is still trying to train after rebooking him instantly when he first got sick. Two sides of the same coin. Yes, that is pretty much it. For instance, just two days later, uh, Randa Marcos said that her UFC 265 was canceled because she got tested positive for COVID, but that, good news, it had already been rescheduled for May 1st. Now, of course, I understand why, for the fighter's point of view, that is good news. They have already gone through camp. They actually need those fights to make money. And if they're feeling fine despite a positive test, I can absolutely see why they have no problem thinking they'll isolate and get right back into training once they are no longer contagious. And they may very well be right. That might be what happens. And that's great. A lot of COVID cases really are mild and kind of easy to get over. Mine definitely was, but it might also not be the case. And being young and without any comorbidities might help, but as we've seen, it's no guarantee because COVID is fucking weird and still unpredictable, and it affects different people in very different ways. Now, again, one could argue that it can always just be as simple as, well, my return to the gym wasn't as good as I expected. I just need to reschedule again. But I think we can all agree that that is not an entirely honest argument, is it? Not if you consider that even in non-pandemic times, fighters are generally not encouraged to say no and that they know what can happen when they turn down fights. We need to consider that a lot of them can even afford to turn out fights, and that the message that they're getting from those around and above them is frankly the same message that we're all kind of getting, that this unspeakable tragedy that's going on all around us shouldn't be getting in the way of our productivity. I can speak for myself when I say that I watch these events week after week and just expect to hear that a fight will fall through due to COVID. And then I lament whatever fight that is and move on with my life as if a positive test is more of a minor nuisance than the regular flow of the sport than it is an actual disease that might seriously affect either the person that tested positive or those around them. Despite the fact that just last week, I saw my partner in tears because his producer was hospitalized and he was told he might not make it through the night. And that two weeks ago, I was getting updates from my dad as one of his best friends went into the ICU. And that two months ago, I cried in my room, unable to leave due to my own positive diagnosis as my hypertensive partner ran to the hospital with what turned out to be, thankfully, not related to COVID, but still a heart infection. He never tested positive, again, thankfully, but that still involved me being confined into a room lonely and scared as I listened for a single cough or any sign that I might have given it to him. I was okay and he was okay and this is not about a woe is me situation. It is about the fact that I know COVID is real and I know that it can be really fucking scary and still I have grown desensitized to hearing about all these real life people having it. A corner person or a fighter tested positive? Bummer. We'll see them in a couple of weeks, I guess. Of course, 
This is in a way understandable as an attitude. More than one year into the situation, we have all had to develop some coping mechanisms. If we spend every single second of every waking hour worrying about COVID, we will all go insane, more insane than we already have anyway. When it comes to the UFC, we have the comfort of knowing no fighters have died, that security measures are in place to at least contain the spread, and that they have worked so far in the sense that no fighter has, to our knowledge, actually fought while sick. Yet, outside of fight week, these fighters are training and traveling and just basically living their lives like the rest of us in a world that has largely been failed by its leaders. They are going to test positive, and their trainers are going to test positive, and their family members are going to test positive. And that's the thing we have collectively accepted as part of the new reality of the sport. As a person who has continued to watch, enjoy, and make my living from MMA, I can't really shame any of it. I also can't, and trust me, I have tried, single-handedly dismantle the capitalistic system and all of these structures that value productivity over human life. I can, however, fulfill my one true role on this planet and kind of bum everyone out about it. And maybe ask, as hard and uncomfortable and truly depressing as it is, that we never ever lose sight of the human dimension of what we're dealing with in MMA and in everything else. And that will do it for today's episode. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, mom for making me. Thank you, Sarah Paulson, for enriching our lives with your artistry. This has been the best camp of my life. See you next week.